The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So we will have small groups tonight. And uh, so it's week four of our 11-week class. And um, remember, we're looking at the five faculties. And it's always in, in the Buddha's, the way the Buddha talked about spiritual life, whether we like it or not, it always begins with wisdom. I mean, however feeble the clarity of the mind is, the understanding in the mind, because whatever clarity we have supports some effort to be awake, to be interested, right? Effort is used for that continuity of awareness. It's the continuity of present moment awareness that stabilizes the mind. So the mind, the knowing mind, becomes a powerful instrument that can kind of cut through habits of distraction, habits of conceptualizing, and see the underlying nature sort of the way it is that's not so um, dependent on our concepts. And then that clear scene, what we call insight, then changes our concepts, like our idea of what the hell, what the heck's going on. Oh, this is how it is. This is the way it works. And then that wisdom, that deepening of understanding or insight then, of course, is a cause for more confidence. Like, oh, a confidence that there's a path, there's something to do with life. Like if I just pay attention, I might actually learn a thing or two about how to be a happier, kinder, more functional human being. And so effort's made. And it's, you know, if we put it in the opposite way, like no confidence that, you know, kind of a nihilistic view of things or whatever, no confidence that, you know, that there's a, a way to live that is anything but drudgery. You know, I mean, and we're, you know, most of us are more fortunate than most in terms of affluence and health. I mean, the fact that we got here tonight in the snowstorm of, means that we have some affluence. We have a car that works and a body that works well enough. Yeah, so just this, you know, confidence that, so the opposite, no confidence or giving up. And so the effort would be, well, like, why bother? You know, the effort would be find something to absorb into, something to distract yourself with, curl up in a little ball or get involved in things that ultimately aren't important but are on the surface at least get our attention, hold our attention, right? And then, you know, because we wouldn't, there wouldn't be any sense of getting somewhere that feels right, feels good, is wholesome, there'd be a greater sense of remorse. Like, we wouldn't feel good about our life or ourself because it's just a matter of staying distracted or staying drunk or staying entertained or whatever means we use. 
And that would be destabilizing for the mind, right? It wouldn't, and there wouldn't be any wisdom. And you could just see what that sort of cycle, we just, like a lot of us are. I mean, we, all of us cycle in that direction, and we know people who cycle in those, that direction at times too. It's not a pretty sight. But seeing that in others and seeing that in ourselves is what evokes that some vega, that poly phrase for spiritual urgency. Like, oh yeah, I don't want that. You know, some acting out various addictive patterns, obsessive patterns. Who does that help? Doesn't help me, doesn't help anybody around me. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like with some patterns, you know, I'm I never feel like I'm that far from teetering you know, we're into unskillful territory. Anybody completely able to avoid unskillful territory? No. People who say they avoid unskillful territory, you know, that's like the worst sign. <laughs> because it means you don't even realize there's unskillful territory. Like you're, you're, the mind is so deluded that it can, so fragile, it can only tell itself a story that unskillful territory isn't unskillful. And the more sensitive, the more stable our awareness is, the more we comprehend how so much of the time the activities of the mind, what the mind is really doing, isn't really helping anybody, including ourselves. It's sort of a frightening realization. I mean, there's a point where, you know, the more you get into it, it's like, oh, you just want to keep going. Because this sort of middle ground of two steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, it's like it's just on. It's on. Uh, it doesn't feel right. Doesn't feel helpful. In uh, different suttas, discourses, the Buddha talks about like that initial faith, and this might be nice in the small groups tonight to tell a little version of your Dharma story. Because often it has to do with some sense of the unworkableness, ungovernableness of life, of having a mind and body, having a relationship. And normally what we do when we see the ungovernableness, the difficulty in life, the messiness, is we get angry, we retreat, we get distracted, we go into denial. I mean, we have these different, you know, management techniques that always involve more stress. But the step on the spiritual path is when we see that and actually there's some faith and joy, there's some confidence and joy, like, oh, I don't just need to freak out that life is the way that it is. There's a way forward. There's something to do with life as it actually is. You know, basically to get interested. And that there's a lot of joy in that. It's sort of interesting that the cause for the joy would be comprehending suffering, stress, the limitations, the messiness of life a little bit more clearly being a little bit closer. 
little bit more undefended and open and, and realizing, oh, sort of taking a good look. And so in a way, this is where energy effort comes from is look, having a more honest look at life as it is, the mind, the body, the conditions, taking a closer, more honest, less defended look and being energized like, because in that moment at least, I don't have to run. I don't have to pick up some pattern of denial or distraction. There's some, not a complete sense, not a clear sense even, but some sense of using the energy of dukkha as a support for transformation, right? Because what does dukkha do when we're not complaining about dukkha, the difficulty, the messiness? It's interesting. It's energizing. Like, how has this come to be? How is this messiness whether we're looking on, you know, on a societal level, the you know cycles of oppression, meanness, or interpersonal relationships like judgment, controlling, shutting down. How does this come to be? Because there's some sense that we're participating in it. We're not just like a helpless victim. That's the real turning point. But that isn't seen unless we're willing to get close to dukkha. We have to you know, be exposed to dukkha in order to recognize just in the beginning steps that we're participating in it. We're not just you know, some external force like God punishing us by giving us this particular fate, this particular life situation, this particular body, this particular messy world, and we're kind of condemned to this difficult. But see, that those sorts of understanding, it, it doesn't support interest. It doesn't support like actually being open and curious because we have this very compelling idea that I'm screwed or other people are screwed and I, I'm the one with good fortune, you know. Oh, in the um, Buddha psychology that sort of developed after the time of the Buddha, one of the expressions of wise effort is a non-collapse of the mind, non-collapse of the heart, right? The heart, mind, it stays, it's like willing to show up. Uh, Gabe and I are doing this, I think it's going to be a really good program, and it sounds like they're going to keep doing it every year, called Race and Dharma, uh, offered by the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, a really great institution. It's part of the same campus that Insight Meditation Society, IMS, and Forest Refuge, and the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. It's all right there in the same kind of hill in the middle of Massachusetts. And um, so they have this online program. We had our first meeting today. And uh, I was with my affinity group, you know, for white people. And we're going to kind of mix it up. But for a while, we're meeting in our affinity groups. And uh, so one of the things we were talking about is this article on white fragility, which we, some of us read a 
few years ago. It's really a good article. And uh, and one of the teachers was saying, like, just how important it is for white people, and I relate to this, like when conversations about race come up, to stay in the room, right? Because we want some story like, oh, I've done that work, or race isn't a problem for white people, it's a problem for people of color, you know, racism. And I feel badly about that, as opposed to somehow beginning to realize, oh no, racism is a problem white people have. <laughs> I mean, that's a, like a real, and then it's really hard to stay in the room when we start to get a sense, white people start to get a sense of that because it's really uncomfortable. And it's a little bit like that with dukkha. Uh, that's why I really see this anti-racism work so much part of uh, just Dharma practice. And it's, you know, for people of color or people, it's like we all have our work of unpacking our cultural conditioning. So it's just different depending on our particular cultural conditioning. Because it, it's really about staying in the room and realizing that as unpleasant as it is, it's energizing to stay in the room, to stay close to the messiness. It's really energizing. We feel alive because we're learning. We're in the vicinity of insight, seeing what we haven't seen before. In the same way when we're on automatic pilot or when we have strong ideas that it's not about me, it's the problems out there, then we start to feel dead, right? Because we're not curious. We're not actually connecting. We're not actually showing up. So this, be really on the lookout this next couple of weeks when we're talking about effort, about the mind, the heart's relationship to dukkha. So I think everybody knows the word dukkha. It's better than suffering, just to start out with a, a different word. Uh, so this is the Pali word, of course. Um, and it, you know, translated as unsatisfactoriness, the ungovernableness, the unworkableness. There's just something about existence, right? Because it's uncertain, because we're so vulnerable, so exposed. You know, here we are, basically animals that want to survive. And because we're social animals, like not only are we concerned with physical survival, we're also concerned with like where we are in hierarchy or whether we belong or not, right? So we're, anything that threatens belonging is sort of an existential crisis and anything that threatens my life is an existential crisis. And because we have sort of complicated language and this capacity to imagine, anytime I imagine not belonging or imagine sickness, aging, death, is an existential crisis, right? So it's sort of a setup. <laughs> Again, if like you haven't noticed it's a setup, because it takes a kind of beginning honesty to sort of realize that, oh yeah, this is really part of life. It really is a setup in this way. And to realize that instead of, oh, I just don't want to deal with the fact that it's a setup, realizing that dealing with it actually is very enlivening. We feel more whole. Because for once, we don't, we're not unconsciously practicing denial and destruction. We're starting to sort of connect. And 
It's just so interesting. We can notice this in just very mundane, mundane ways. Whenever the mind goes from just being lost in thought to just connecting, like, what does it feel like in the body? It may not be pleasant at all when we, like, open to the experience of sitting or walking or whatever the body's doing. But there's something enlivening about no longer, for a moment or two, being lost in thought, lost in whatever, you know, kind of delusion, <laughs> imaginations we were just in a moment ago. So really notice that moment of the mind connecting with the present moment and hopefully sustaining that present moment awareness for a few moments. And as intensely unpleasant as it might be to be feeling whatever is un- left over you know, emotionally, the emotional reverberation and the physical sensations and just the exposure to the particular circumstances that are true for us in that moment. A grim, cold, snowy April 2nd evening, you know, when we're kind of hoping for 55 at least or 60 degree weather. And what do we have? (laughs) And then (laughs) I did the stupid thing of looking at, you know, the little weather app on my phone, you know, and where it gives you, I think, 10 days or 14 days. And it was like, I think there are four days where it's just like a snowflake and the next week. It's like at least half of the days this week it's supposed to be snowing. Sorry to break it to you. (laughs) It just doesn't seem fair. But to really like land, like that we're not in control of weather or the news or, you know, all of that. And, And to not immediately mistrust the unpleasantness of what that feels like to be connected. You know, just like to grow roots into it, to let the roots, to feel in, to not be, to not practice denial. And, and to notice how that effort pays off. Like there's, it's a karmic act to connect and sustain with reality. And whenever there's a karmic act, there's results. I mean, that's what karma means. It's t- to act in a way that leads to results. That's what karma means. Not just there are results immediately, and then there's seeds planted for future results. And that's always true. Whenever the mind does something with intention, it feels like something. Just like when I practice, intentionally practice being distracted, choose to be absorbed into something, to be lost in thought, then there's an immediate consequence of whether I'm aware of that consequence or not depends on whether there's awareness. But you start to feel disconnected, numb, because we're in our bubble and not sort of connected to the aliveness of things coming and going. So we want to notice how energizing it is to connect and sustain with the present moment. And remember that that feeling of energy is different than the pleasantness or unpleasantness of what it feels like to be opening or connecting with the present moment. There's sort of two things. You know how we say sometimes, you know, something hurts so good, right? And there's some, it's like one of those cliches that has some real wisdom in it. It's like having an authentic relationship 
even with pain, to not be in denial, to not be running, feels good. So this interest into this interest, this curiosity with dukkha, with the way it is, with the truth, like even when it's a pleasant moment, it's unsatisfactory. Because we can't make it last, we can't really own the nice moments that come our way. They're there, they might be really nice, just how we want it. You might go home tonight and have a comfortable time crawling into your bed with whatever, however that looks for you, you know, or whatever is pleasant for you, hanging out with your four-legged friend or your partner or your people you live with in a way that's pleasant. But whether you're aware of it or not, if you really connect, you'll know that it's ephemeral. I mean, when we're really connected, we never forget death. Like even on that sort of, it's like we never, you ha- we have to be deluded to not be aware of death. We might think, oh, Mark's so neurotic, he's always thinking about death. But it's actually the other way around. Like to somehow not be aware that whatever this is, is something that lasts and then ends, that's delusion, to not be aware of the impermanence, like the impermanence of this class, the impermanence of everything. But it's very enlivening. And it's very conducive to learning, to insight. And then, because of the exposure to insight, to learning, to the deepening of understanding, something starts to come online. You could call it a profound immunity. So there is karma, there is cause and effect, There is dukkha, and then there's immunity. (laughs) It's like life is uncertain. There is this profound vulnerability, ungovernableness, and it's okay. And that effort really starts to reveal that this is really the fruit of insight. And in Buddhism, we can talk about it as the scent of freedom. Initially, we don't have that sense of freedom. I mean, we have the words, you know, or from our, our teachers who say, you know, in some fashion that, you know, that this isn't a nihilistic path. Like we're practicing being awake, so we can be honest about how doomed we are. <laughs> That's not what the Buddha says. <laughs> you know, we practice being awake initially because it's energizing. It's enlivening to not be in denial. But then that sets in motion some insight, some learning. And we start to have this sense of freedom that it's not only avoiding the numbness, the deadness of being in denial, being distracted, being closed off, being in our little bubbles, whatever those many bubbles are that we use to protect ourselves from life as it actually is, it's not only that we lose that numbness, that deadness, and we're just having a more authentic life, but lo and behold, something comes, something begins to arise because learning can't be stopped, insight can't be stopped. And the mind realizes a way of relating to the ungovernable, the imperfect, the messy, 
nature of life in a way that a heart feels completely released, unafraid. And then as that understanding develops, our participation, our engagement, the nimbleness becomes more beautiful, which is just more cause for happiness, to be able to contribute. You know how that feels, right? Because we all do it in little ways at least, right? Where there are moments where we've been able to really contribute to our happiness, the happiness of others, say the right thing at the right time. It was so nice today. I got an email. Is Maggie here today? She's sometimes in the Buddhist studies class. Um, but she sent an email to the, I uh, forget which community group, about calling Governor Dayton about this uh, legislation that's passed that he sh- we hope, some of us hope, will veto, about uh, restricting the rights of protesters. And also, I think there's a, like a new, st- new state law about messing with, infra- like getting in the way of infrastructure projects. Basically, you know, you're not allowed to express your First Amendment right around pipelines <laughs> or anything else that... So anyway, it was just, you know, I just happened to get that email and I happened to have a few minutes and I called the governor's office as the email kind of, you know, someone actually picked up the phone, <laughs> which I thought, well, that's pretty amazing, you know, and, and just be able to say kind of my opinion. And it was just, uh, it just felt like, oh, that little, I mean, I'm not s- suspecting that it's going to be the sort of tipping point, but participating felt good. You know, just like doing something, not just, oh, why bother, right? But like engaging, showing up, doing something. And so this is, the, this is what we want to learn these next two weeks or so when we're really looking at effort. It's not like, oh, I have to make effort, but we get to make effort. And the alternative to making effort is to slowly die, right? It's like, here we have a life, we have a mind, We have the possibility of energy, but what are we choosing to do? Like basically be lost, like to sort of step away from our life, step away from the world that we're actually inhabiting. However imperfect it is, it is our world. It's the only one we have. However creative our bubbles will be, those bubbles will never be as real. I mean, our dreams, you know, our fantasies, our imaginations, are never as real as actual relationships. Sexual fantasies are not like actually being next to another human being and being intimate in that way, right? It's like there's just something about connecting with life. But so much of what our mind tells ourselves is that, well, it's not the way I want it to be, so I'll get lost in thought. And it's like such a slippery slope because, you know, as we get lost in thought, like I've been saying, we get numb. So we're even more needy of something interesting. But instead of going to the world for something interesting, we go to more thought, more fantasy, more imagining. And we keep moving away and get hunger. We get hungrier and hungrier and we move away, right? That's called samsara, right? Buddhism, these cycles of suffering, how the pattern itself creates the suffering we're running from. 
but we just end up in deeper, deeper do, you know, as we try honestly to deal with our suffering, but we don't know enough, so we keep digging the hole deeper. So just notice the energy and notice the, the energy we get from connecting and sustaining wherever it sits in daily life. And notice the energy we get from the scent of freedom. That, because that's the energy that makes us want to do the one thing, like from a self point of view, we can do. Because initially, it's a self-centered project. We can't go right to emptiness and like, okay, it's nature's business. It's all nature. There's no self here. Okay, nature, do the awakening thing. <laughs> no, because remember, the awakening is something a deluded human being does. Non-deluded human beings don't need to wake up. Only deluded human beings need to, be wa- to wake up. So d- waking up is something a deluded being does. It's, it feels like a self-centered project, right? Initially, it feels very self-centered, like, I'm tired of suffering and running from suffering. I'm tired of that too. So come hell or high water, I'm, I'm going to do what I haven't been doing because nothing else works. So I'm going to do the one thing I haven't been doing. I'm going to turn toward life. I'm going to say yes to life. This body and mind, this moment, this circumsta- these circumstances, the conditions here and now, I'm going to open and we experience something new, right? The energy of connecting, the energy of sustaining. And then because that feels more alive, then we're willing to make the effort to, to sort of sustain. It's really understand we've got to build this muscle of present moment awareness. And it's really about these four exertions. And we'll talk more about this next week. And that's, Preventing the mind from, or let's all start with abandoning, right? Abandoning distraction, basically, right? And preventing distraction and developing the qualities that allow the mind to be awake, to be present, and maintaining those qualities. So we want to practice the preventing without kind of that tight repression, like being afraid of making a mistake. And we want to abandon without aversion. You know, we want to develop wholesome qualities that allow us to be awake without greed. And we want to maintain wholesome present moment awareness without being conceited about it. Oh yeah, I'm really awake. I'm really present. So there's, you know, it's like effort has to be wise. Makes sense. Like we don't want effort that's counterproductive. We want to make effort that goes in the direction, leads that onward leadingness. Remember we talked about that the last two weeks around faith energy, that it has an onward leading quality to it. Like it actually, and it, when you look at the five faculties, we have faith, and at the other end we have wisdom. So faith is that onward leading energy that actually leads to the transformation of understanding. That's the wisdom piece. That's the definition of confidence or faith is it's an energy that leads to things changing. 
Whereas samsara, we're making a lot of energy when we're in samsara, the cycles of suffering, but it doesn't lead anywhere. It just leads to the more of the same. We always do what we've always done. We always get what we've always gotten. So nothing changes. So when we talk about con- you know, confidence or faith in a spiritual sense, it's that energy in the heart or mind that actually supports a real transformation of understanding. So I'll leave it here, but we'll pick it up for at least two more weeks, or one more week and probably two more weeks. And then for the small groups tonight, a couple thoughts. I mentioned one already. It's just a small version of your Dharma story, but in terms of the presence of faith or confidence in your mind, in your heart, and how that, that was energizing, that had that onward leading, like a, allowed you to go in a new direction. Right? And even if you're going back 20 years, like what did your mind, what was the, you know, this is a time where we get to tell a self-story, right? a little bit, but, but we're highlighting how probably because life was hurting us, <laughs> You know, and it and in this case, the pain of life caused us to take a closer look. The mind started to understand something that was inspiring. Oh, maybe there's a way. Maybe there's something to do. And how that was uh, like allowed you to make some changes, even in relatively mundane ways. So don't. Oh, and then I went on my first Buddhist meditation retreat. It might be I left that relationship, you know, or I left that job, or I you know, spoke truth to power or... So, because these changes, these shifts, like breaking out of a strong personality pattern and going in a new direction has that same flavor of spiritual freedom. Not being imprisoned by these cycles of suffering that repeat, that recreate themselves. That's one thing you might share in your small group. And then the other is just uh, the presence of doubt and this is interesting, you know, especially those of us who've been in the practice for a while. It's like, oh yeah, I really trust the Buddhist teachings. They just make so much sense, but I'm pretty sure I can't do it. You know, I have this kind of mind, or I've got these details in my life. You know, my parents are old and they need my time, or whatever. But just like how the mind justifies, like, because, you know, we hear these sort of amazing stories of, spiritual practitioners willing to practice as if their head is on fire, right? We have these kind of graphic images. And we just somehow think, yeah, but you know, not me. I'm just, you know, in this sort of middle-aged, privileged guy, you know. I'm in this part of my life where, you know, yeah, maybe when I was a young guy, but now I'm over here. I'm just on that long slide into oblivion. (laughs) Maybe in my next life I'll have better circumstances. So like how doubt comes in. The opposite of like, oh yeah, this is inspiring. I can do this. I mean, that's the whole point. The Buddha exists as a symbol like, you can do this too. There's In this messy world, in this very imperfect world, there is a way to be really free, really alive, really engaged, not burdened. So, just uh, how doubt moves. And there's, of course, anything that seems relevant in your small groups. Remember to sit close. Remember to really respect the process. So, 
Share your names, even if you have your name tag there. Decide the order. Really, like when the other people are talking, really settle into your body so you can be there. And you don't have to give them anything. Your gift is just to be radically present as they share and to really hold the space so if they run out of things to say, it's really okay just to sit together in silence until your three minutes is up. Any questions about the small groups? So what do you think? A little less than 60? Why don't we do 18 tonight? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.